Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, which begins in our church Bibles on page 886. Please stand if you are able as we read from the New Testament. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Please be seated. Will you please join me in prayer as we come to this passage today? Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this season. We ask that you would meet with us during our moments here. And we pray that you would shine brightly for us to see. Open up our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear your word to us today. Amen. The Christmas season is here. There's just something about this time of year, right? I don't know if it is uh, the nostalgia, maybe, of memories of Christmas's past that you have. Uh, maybe it's because you get a little bit of time off work. Maybe because it's a little more appropriate during this time of year rather than summer to drink some eggnog. I don't know. Maybe it's the music. I know some people that don't like Christmas music. But I love Christmas music in spite of what Light 98 tries to do and overplaying every Christmas song, I still listen to that station. Unless it's Paul McCartney's Simply Having a Wonderful Christmas Time, I just don't prefer that one. But I love this time of year. The tacky lights, the beautiful lights, everything about it. Going to Christmas Town at Bush Gardens with the family is just, it's enjoyable. Or maybe you'd like to take a, a drive late one wintry night and you see the, the lights from the houses piercing the darkness of the winter sky. I just love this time of year. There's something about it. It's beautiful. But typically when we come to church during this time of year, we expect a series on Advent, and you expect to hear some take on the angels, the shepherds, the manger scene, or a baby that it was born and placed in a feeding trough. This series isn't about that, though. Rather than taking a look at those details and describing those details, we're going to start this series and we're going to go through this series actually looking at the light of Christmas. And not the description thereof, but what that means for us. What does Christmas really mean for us? That's what we as a staff want this series to be for each of us. A look at the light of Christmas. Eternity past, present, and eternity future. What does it really mean? So today we come to this passage in John 1, and if you'd open up your Bibles there to it, it would be helpful as we're going to be looking at the entirety of the text there, verses 1 to 18, rather than just the five that are printed in your bulletin. And as you read the book of John, you'll notice that John, Jesus' best friend, tries to promote and push Jesus as the creator God. Each of the gospel accounts does this in some way. They have their own point that they're trying to make. And this is John's, that Jesus would be seen as God. And you'll find that as you read John, it has a a very profound effect 
on you as you read through this and you walk away from John seeing the greatness and the majesty and the splendor of who Christ is, this this Savior. Every time you read it, Christ will become bigger and bigger and bigger. If you've read C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, it's like Lucy's experience with Aslan the lion, which we know is the Christ symbol in the book. She looks up into his face and he says, Welcome, child. She says, Aslan, you're bigger. That is because you're older, little one, he answered. Not because you are, she replies. I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. My hope is that as we look at this passage, as we go through this series, this little baby in a manger that is on our minds this time of year will become bigger and bigger and bigger for each of us. So it begs the question today, how big is your Savior? Now, of course, we're in church, so immediately all of us say, oh, yeah, Jesus, he's big. No, no, really. Okay, let's be real. This is a safe place. We can be real with one another. How big is your Savior? You say, what do you mean? What we do is we set up a bunch of functional Saviors, do we not? You know the things that we rely upon daily to satisfy us, to give us hope, give us meaning? You know those things that if I could just... And you fill in the blank. If I could just get a boyfriend, then I would be happy, or a girlfriend. If I could just get a spouse, if I could just have children, then my life would be complete. But you know, once we get those things, we always want the next thing. These are functional saviors that we think will satisfy us, but they won't. They push us, they drive us each day. So I want each of us right now to take a moment and think, what is my functional savior? Really think about it. You have yours in your mind now? Now, today, as we go through this, this passage begs us to hold that Savior up against the Savior that this passage recommends and see how our functional Saviors measure up. There's so much to be said about these verses here, and one sermon will not begin to be able to do all of that. But as we're going to focus today here on verse 4, we need to unpack this and really see what it means for us. So let's look at that. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. First, we want to see the majesty of the light. First, light, this light, is majestic. By majestic, I'm not talking about the hills are alive with the sound of music majestic. Impressively beautiful, though this Christmas light is that. That's not what this passage is talking about. This word majestic means having sovereign power or authority. Go back to verses 1 to 3 and look at this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him not anything that was made was made. Do you see what John does right here out of the gate? He starts this passage saying that God is huge. Jesus is huge. He tells us first that he is eternally preexistent. What does that mean? Look at that phrase. In the beginning was the word. You grammarians out there are going to kill me. But quite literally, this is what he's saying. Jesus always was wasing. He is preexistent. He always was continuing. I don't know about you, but that gives me a headache to think about. In our minds, we, we think back, backwards in time, until time disappears. 
And there stands Jesus. There begin our thoughts of Jesus. Literally, no beginning. How big is your Savior? Jesus is eternally preexistent, but he's also a relational God. Look at this. And the Word was with God. This signifies a great relationship between this other mind-blowing fact that the Godhead is this three-in-one, this eternal relationship. Why do you think we as image bearers, as those that were created in the image of God, have such a strong desire for relationship with other people? It's because God is a relational God. But he's not just relational, he is God. Look at this. And the word was God. Jesus is God. In essence and character, he is God. He's not just a God. He is God. We can unpack those phrases for weeks and weeks. But next we see he's creator. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. You also see this in Colossians 1, verses 16 to 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Do you see that? There's about 100 billion stars in the average galaxy. And at least 100 million known galaxies in space. And they say that we can only see like a billionth of what space really is. So this means that there are at least 10 octillion stars in space. Say, what What is an octillion? 10 octillion is 10 with 27 zeros behind it. All right? Look at that number up there on the screen. Jesus, the light of life, created each of these stars, and even if you're buying your boyfriend or girlfriend one of these stars that you can name for Christmas, Jesus knows them all by name. And he created them, every last one of them. He holds them in place right now. The only reason they're not flying off or flying towards earth is because he is holding them in his hands. How big is your Savior? This is the type of Savior that you can trust with everything and anything. He's the creator, and because he's the creator, he knows what his creation needs. Charles Steinmetz was a mechanical genius and friend of Henry Ford, and he was noted as one that could build a motor in his mind, every final detail of this motor, and if that motor broke in his mind, he could fix it. And then one day, the assembly line at the Ford plant broke down. None of Ford's men could fix it, so they called on Steinmetz. And he tinkered around for a few minutes, and then he threw on the switch, and it started running again. And a few days later, Ford received the bill from Steinmetz for $10,000. And Ford wrote back, Charlie, don't you think $10,000 is a little bit high for just a little tinkering? And Steinmetz sent back the revised bill stating, tinkering, $10. Knowing where to tinker, $9,990. The point is this. Jesus the light of life, the creator is the only one that knows where to tinker to keep us in running perfect order. As a creator, he knows which screw to turn, which belt to tighten, namely that the engine, our hearts, needs to be replaced. So this light, this little baby in a manger has always been and will always be 
He is God, a relational God, and the creator of everything. Truly majestic, truly sovereign, one with authority. Are you resting in him? Have you entrusted even the small details of your life to this creator? How big is your savior? Secondly, the meaning of light. Darkness and light. It's a common theme, right? We know this. We see this in life, and we see this battle between darkness and light. In any good story, there's a battle. The light is, oh boy, the 830 service was better than that. The light is what? Good. And the darkness is evil. Yes, we know this. And we're familiar with this imagery that's used here, this conflict between light and darkness. We've talked about the majesty of this light, but what is it really? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He's not just talking about beating heart life. He's talking about spiritual life. So if life is light, then what is darkness? Death. There we go. We don't know what spiritual death and life really are, though. We can't grasp them. We can kind of think about it, but what we really understand them by is these words, this picture here of darkness and light. We understand those things. We know and we appreciate light. Even as adults, we're scared of darkness on some level. Have you ever walked around this church by yourself at night when the lights are off? It's freaky. <laughs> Stephen King even knows this. Listen to what he says. He was interviewed when, about his writing habits, and he said this. No way would I do any of my writing at night. Have you ever read the content of my books? <laughs> Darkness. So this darkness relates to death. It's not just talking about physical death, but namely spiritual death. That's why in John 8, he talks about walking in darkness. Walking in darkness. You don't see really dead people walking. It's a spiritual death. Just as we see here, these people in this passage that have rejected Jesus are blind to him and who he is. They're living life in darkness. They walk in darkness. They're spiritually dead to all of the greatest realities. And if they're going to see these things, they need, they must have new life. Look around this room. The job at the mall. You see people that look alive. But are they really? They aren't dead because they can't walk or talk or see or feel or even see with physical eyes. But they're dead, as Matthew 13 says, because seeing they do not see. Hang with me here. In verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So this new life brings light. Get this. New life makes it possible to see. The new life makes it possible to see. So when death is replaced with life, darkness is replaced with light. That's why we see in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's what this is about. When you receive Jesus, you receive life. And when you receive life, you receive light. Here's the deal. Before Jesus, because of my sin, I am spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, I am dead in my trespasses and sins. And as a dead man, I will never, ever respond to anything unless something outside of me acts upon me. 
because I'm dead. But Ephesians 2 goes on and says, But God, being rich in his mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, catch this, made us alive together with Christ. So God, an external force, acts on me in my deadness and my blindness and makes me alive. Another way to illustrate is this. Imagine yourself in one of those West Virginia coal mines, deep in one of those coal mines, and the lights go out. Complete, total darkness. It's oppressive. You can almost feel it. Stay down there long enough and you'll actually go blind. But you can't see a thing. You can't even move toward anything. This is where we are spiritually apart from Jesus. Dead, blind, unable to do anything on our own. Then... God, being rich in mercy, steps into that mind shaft. He brings life and he flips on the switch and we are able to see as if we have never seen before. He takes our hearts of stone and gives us hearts of flesh or a, a new engine, as we talked about before. Tuesday we were talking about this passage in our staff meeting and Michael Bryant put it so perfectly as he always does. This is the real grand illumination. And I've got to add this in. John uses this word, logos, which word. See it? Look down at the passage. It was used in his day in reference to the meaning, purpose, or fulfillment in life. People were searching for logos. You get that? You ever heard that today? I'm just searching for meaning. I'm searching for purpose. I'm searching for the reason of life. They use that word logos. So John says here, look at this, it's awesome. In the beginning was the meaning for life. So he meets people right where they are, and he says, this light is the meaning for your life. It is the reason for your life. You don't have to search. Now look at your functional Savior and what that Savior requires of you. We fight, and we fight. Then we think we get there, and we realize, oh, the, there's something else. So we fight and we fight, and we're always coming up short. The light of life came and lived the life that we could never live and died the death that we should have died. And he is calling us to believe on him, looking only to Jesus Christ, the life and light of men. And as we sing often here, all that he requireth is to feel your need of him. He will come and save you. Finally, the magnitude of the light. This light is massive. And its extent, the way it extends out, and the amount of this light available. Let's look first at the extent. We're going to hit this quickly, but look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Literally, the light continually shines in the darkness. Christ is continually bombarding the darkness of our hearts, searching out every corner through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that light goes out and it dispels darkness and it keeps going, it keeps reaching, it keeps searching, even though some reject it, as you see here in this passage. Verse 9, which gives light to every man. Doesn't mean that every man will respond to it, just like the flu shot is available for each of us. That doesn't mean we're each going to get it. You see, Paul writes this to the Romans in chapter 1. He says that nature itself reveals God. So we all know that there is a God. This light has extended out to everyone. And it keeps extending. 
but also the amount. The darkness has not overcome it. You see that? There is no amount of darkness that will overcome this light. There's just too much of it. The power of the light is greater than the power of darkness. And though you may look around the world today, you may look inside of your own heart and you feel oppressed by the darkness, do not be so easily overwhelmed, this passage says. The darkness cannot and will not overcome this light. But we saw that the extent of this light goes out and that some receive this light. Others reject it. Look at verse 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But... Some did receive the light. Keep looking at the passage. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You think that's kind of a big thing? To become a child of the creator of everything? Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived here among us. Emmanuel. We have seen his glory, glory as the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. And look down at verse 16. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. You see this? The fullness of an infinite God. Fullness and infinite. How does that work? And the grace upon grace. It's like mashed potatoes at Christmas or Thanksgiving. He's heaping it on. He just keeps piling it on us. This grace upon grace upon grace. It's beautiful. Martin Luther, the great reformer of faith, described it like a candle. He said this, I suppose that a hundred thousand candles can be ignited from one light, and still this light will not lose any of its brilliance. Christ is a bottomless wellspring and source of all grace to us. Do you see this amount? It's huge. Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. It's readily available for us. We heard it sung during the offering. For all those who live in the shadows of death, the glorious light has dawned. For all those who stumble in the darkness, behold, your light has come. How big is your Savior? So what? What does this all mean? What is, who really cares about this? What does it mean? I just want to conclude with two thoughts here. It's tough to imagine on a day like today, but have you ever stepped out in a bright, on a bright sunny day and just taken in the sun, just looked directly at the sun? You can't do it for long. Why? It'll burn your retina, okay? You're told that when you're a little kid. Don't look at the light. Don't look at the light. So you have to look at the sun through a filter, Only then can you see the glory of what the sun really is. Now, do you remember Moses when he was on the mountain? And he said, God, show me your glory. And God said, no way, I can't show you my glory. It'll melt your face. And Moses was like, well, I want to see it. And God said, what I'll do is I will cover your face. And then as I pass by, I will let you see my back. It's beautiful. Since we could not look at him without uh, this a filter, if we look at him without that, the retina of our souls will be burned up. So he gave us Jesus, the light of life. He's the visible expression of the invisible God. He is this filter. That's why in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, we sing this. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. The word became flesh, and we beheld his glory. 
He came for you. You say, wait a second. I came here for some inspiration. This is the Christmas season. If I remember correctly, you just told me that I'm a wicked sinner and I'm dead. And I can't hear anything and I can't see anything. And I need to be changed from the inside out. Yes. First, because this, Christianity is not about inspiration for life. It's not a tranquilizer for real life so that you don't mourn the death of loved ones, that you don't struggle because you lost your job. That's not Christianity. Christianity is this, that in the bleak midwinter of our soul, there is a comfort in the darkness because the darkness cannot overcome the light. That is more than inspiration. That is truth. And he says, I am eternal. I am relational. God, the creator of the universe, and based upon who I am, I guarantee the darkness will not overcome the light. Is he your savior? Some may be sitting in here today that say, I'm with you on this. I believe that. I believe in the majesty and meaning and the magnitude of this life, this light. He is my Savior. He truly is. Then there's a clear calling for those of us that have become children of God, literally children of light. We are called by Him to join Him in pushing back the darkness. Yes, we are called not just to stand here and shine, but to raid the darkness with his light that dwells within us. Do you see this? We're going to look at this in a few weeks. But this is our calling, to take risk for the sake of this light because we know this light will never be diminished. The darkness will not overcome it. So we can actually raid the darkness in this season. So today, how big is your Savior? Do you have your list? How does he measure up to the life and light of men? Today, would God grant us the grace that we could all behold the Lamb of God, the life and light of men? Let's pray. Father, we ask you today that you would continue to let your word ring in our hearts, that we would see you, that we would see this great light and the beauty of it, that you would confirm who you are in our souls. And that if there are any here today, if it please you, if there's any here today that are living in darkness, we ask that you would draw them by your grace to the light. God, we ask that those of us that are children of light, that we would not take that privilege for granted. For with privilege comes responsibility, and you have called us to invade the darkness with your light. May we be confident not in ourselves, but in you, the light of life.